Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show made by people of colour speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Sharika Hellaludin. And it's that exact idea of ongoing resistance and resilience that continues well into our show today as we are dedicating conversation to the continued fight of occupied Palestine. Whilst it's not the first time we've turned to this region and its diaspora, our conversation on the uprisings and liberation for Palestinian peoples will last as long as the illegal occupation of their lands continue. This feels especially needed in a climate where Australian media is barely talking about this, no doubt because of their own allegiances with the project of colonisation for First Nations peoples here. It's kind of haunting how parallel these narratives are from Gadigal land to Gaza. The reclamation of land, kin and country is unfolding before us, yet even in progressive circles, it proves to be too complicated to comprehend. Earlier this week, Darren Lasagas spoke to third-generation Palestinian refugee and organiser Amal Nasser and independent journalist Mel Chun. Mel is the audio editor for the Sunday paper, which was born out of a boycott of media giant Schwartz and its deliberate erasure of Palestine and suppressing critique of the Israeli state. Together, they spoke about what is happening on the ground in Palestine and what we should be paying attention to at this moment, as well as the power of boycott movements across the globe to bring Israel occupation into account. You'll also hear them speak to the complexities of what it is to forge relationships of solidarity across these colonies and why this interracial solidarity could truly upheaval all of these colonial projects. Amal, we might turn to you first. Um, You're often writing and have been outspoken about the continued occupation that's happening in Palestine. Just in the last week, 
we continue to hear about Palestinians being uprooted from their homes and a continued lack of accountability and reprimand for Israeli forces. What is it that you want people to be paying attention to at this moment? Um, what's really important to pay attention to is the lack of international law uh, accountability that is happening right now. Um, and I think there are several things ongoing at the moment. We have um, investigations um, into the um, assassination or murder or killing or whatever words we want to use to describe it of uh, the Al Jazeera journalist Reen Abu Akhla. And um, we had just last week or a couple of days ago, actually, I'm very bad with time right now, but um, we had the US release their um, investigations and their report. Um, and it was one of the most confusing things to, prob to probably read uh, United States historically, as we would know when it comes to um, issues of uh, journalists being assassinated in countries that are not their allies or even their allies, but they just um, don't feel as strongly connected to like Saudi Arabia or, um, or Afghanistan or Russia. We've seen really strong statements come out. In this case, they actually performed an investigation and they revealed that their investigation showed that um, the camera footage um, and the footage that they had on the ground uh, strongly indicates that uh, this was um, this was the, the death was at the hands of an Israeli um, soldier. And then they kind of started it off with saying that the bullet was inconclusive because it was really damaged and destroyed. And despite all without the um, imposing um, any sanctions or any or any threats of of something that would kind of trigger uh, uh, trigger a response from Israel to, to impose some form of accountability for what had occurred. Um, and that's what we're, what we're seeing here is, is we're seeing an exceptionalization of the state on, on an international law platform from Western states who have the power um, to, to mobilize and to hold the state into account for, for its um, war crimes um, and human rights violations. And then simultaneously, we have um, reports coming out of um, the UN and there's a, currently um, on the ground, there's an uh, ongoing um, investigation um, into Israel. And, and we, we, we heard just a couple of weeks ago, um, a conclusion that the uh, violence that is happening on the ground, um, which is how they characterized it as, and the events of last May, especially, um, and this continuous cycle of violence that we are seeing, um, the cause of that is Israel's ongoing occupation and its policies and its treatment of the Palestinian people. And it is under onus to end that. So that's what we're kind of seeing simultaneously happening. And with both of these things happening at the same time, we've got multiple investigations ongoing. We are seeing an exceptionalization of the state. And I think that's something that people need to start are paying attention to and, uh, and, and ensuring that, that the countries that we live in um, are attempting to put the state into account. Yeah, you speak on you know this idea of collective and global accountability. Palestine has long been described as a, um, as a litmus test where solidarity with Palestine is not just about our ind individual choices, but also about our collective ability. Um, there's a reality of a global narrative. It's not a domestic or a localized one that has legitimized oppression for uh, you know many decades. Are you able to speak um, more about how you you understand that? When when we when I personally would would say that um, Palestine acts as a litmus test, 
um, for progressives. I think it is because it entails in the modern world a lot of values that progressives supposedly should have. So that is being against uh, racism, being against colonialism, being against imperialism. Um, and these are kind of free tenants, I would say, to, to progressivism. Um, but what we are seeing is uh, progressives, or so-called so -called progressives, um, in settler colonial states, they're, they're more than happy to, to wave, you know, solidarity um, with what's happening on the ground in their states, but they're not willing to transcend that and, and to be transnational from that because it's ongoing. And, and to them, you know, the, the, the tough point is, is, is now this military occupation is happening and it's ongoing and it's happening right now in lifetime. But we're more than happy to wave um, to, to, you know, um, call out settler colonial violence that happened years ago. Um, and these same progressives tend to not tend to not be strong on on calling out colonial violence that is happening today. And you see that resonating. So if people are incapable of calling out violations in Palestine, they're likely incapable to call out um, imperialist violence that is unleashed by the US. They're unlikely to call out ongoing colonial violence that is unleashed by so-called Australia and unleashed by the US and the UK and Canada, but they're, they're very happy to pay lip service to what has happened um, years ago. And it's more obvious um, that, 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 that um, those policies were wrong and immoral. Um, bringing it to kind of grassroots, how do you root those ideas of, you know, um, collective accountability in the work that both of you do? Well, I think something that's really important to remember in this as well is like, you know, we see uh, what's happening in Palestine as something, you know, obviously it's happening overseas and we see sort of um, a lot of the US's part in that, in supporting the state of Israel. Um, and I think often we don't see it as an Australian issue. Um, and it's, you know, it's really obvious to um, us activists on the ground, I think, but, you know, a, a lot of Australians sort of don't realise that Australia has a really um really powerful part in in supporting the state of israel you know always has um you know pushing back against uh palestinians trying to stand up for their rights um the south australian uh high court um upholding the ihra the uh international holocaust remembrance association's um definition of anti-semitism which is really problematic, but because it includes um, denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination, for example, by claiming that the existence of the state of Israel is a racist endeavor. So that definition of uh, anti-Semitism actually, you know, deliberately delegitimizes um, Palestinians' right to uh, to to fight. Um, and so I, I say this as, as an example of, you know, things are happening in Australia right now where, where Palestinians are going, you know, can we change these definitions so that we can be recognised as having, um, you know, having our rights taken away, having our land taken away, being dispossessed. Um, and, you know, there are, there are very powerful forces within Australia, um, corporate and political that are pushing back against those constantly. There are a lot of, powerful institutions and forces that are constantly pu pushing back against these um, 
these movements in Australia. And so, yeah, I mean, all this is to say that we we have to remember that this is this is very relevant to an Australian audience. This isn't like, you know, and Australian um, progressives are happy to to stand up against, um, you know, like abortion laws in in the US and that that sort of thing. So we're we're always happy to like look at things that are going overseas and stand up against them. Um, and that's great, but we do have to remember this is our issue to fight for. Like we need to be, we're paying taxes to this government, you know, um, so we're actually, our money is going towards supporting apartheid, essentially. Um, yeah, so I guess like I, I always try and remember that um, when I'm, you know, organizing on a grassroots level. Um, to put it in accountability, you know, this idea of uh, um, collective solidarity to call out um, imperial systems around the globe who are implicit in what's happening in Palestine. How do you kind of reverse engineer that back to what we do, you know, on a grassroots level? I was um, in class today and I, I heard someone say, um, they're, they're trying to make a progressive point, and I'm pretty sure they're a very, very progressive person. But when I heard the comment being made, I just kind of giggled inside a little bit because they are saying, Russia was so clear it was like a clear-cut international law violation for the world stage because it is what we expect to see in the textbook in the sense a country has walked into one land and claimed that it is this when it is not and in my mind I'm just like this is happening right now in so many in so many other places right and especially um, ongoing in in Israel and in Palestine. So why 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 isn't that not clear cut for the international world stage? And, and that was ironic for me. Um, just going back on what was on 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 the idea of on, on, on grassroots actions, I think what what we what I like to ensure is being highlighted and, and what I, I like to center is that when we're advancing peace for the Palestinian cause. We are advancing. We are we are pushing the de- we are pushing the process of decolonization because what is happening in total islands, what is happening um, in so-called Australia, what's happening in Palestine, and and so on, it is all tied by the same systems and by the same ideas, ideologies, and most importantly, historically, we the same defenses are being used, just in you know different font now. It's just a new font. Um, what I have to say. And the mechanisms that are used against certain groups in different time periods are being used, um, the same laws and the same framework and the same legislations are being used to suppress all forms of resistance. So when we look at the diaspora, one of the main forms of resisting um, and of pushing for accountability is through boycotts, as we saw with the Sydney Festival boycott and we see with the general um, BDS movement. And in the aftermath of that, you know, we had progressives say, you know, this is censorship, you know, oh, I agree that occupation is bad, but, you know, you, you can't do this. I, this is too eerie for me. This is too disruptive for me, right? So then they're okay when legislation is being put in place, when legislation is being discussed um, in an Australian context about preventing boycotts. Um, and and they're fine with that. They're fine with that form of protest. You know, when we look at in, in the modern day, one of the main forms of of perpetuating colonial violence is, is through you know these mining companies um, in, in on stolen land in in, um, in the US and, and in Australia, and they're using the exactly same frameworks to stop that as the same frameworks that they've stopped to 
with BDS. And that's the problem with progressives, right? Because when BDS laws go to the Supreme Court in a couple of months, I don't, I don't think we're going to be seeing progressives march, marching on the streets if suddenly the First Amendment right to boycott and to protest is, is, um, is, is diminished. But we will see progressives in the street when they, when they see white women being impacted and when they can see themselves being impacted. And that's not progressivism, that's narcissism in my view. Um, so, you know, we, we need to recognise that we are fighting the same systems and the same structures. Um, and if we don't, then, um, then we're not going to have liberation in our time for, for whether it's patriarchy, dismantling, settler colonialism or any of that, because they're all intertwined and we have to start realising that. Um, I want to pivot a little bit to another instance of this style of um, mass boycott um, is some of the work that is happening with the Sunday paper. Um, Mel, for those who aren't familiar, what is the Sunday paper? Yeah, so the Sunday paper, um, and I guess I'll caveat, I'll start by saying that I'm actually just the audio editor. Um, so, you know, I'm not like, I don't have much of a position of authority, but, you know, they've, they've given me permission to speak today um, on their behalf. Uh, but the Sunday paper was set up in opposition to Schwartz Media. So Schwartz Media, Maury Schwartz is um, a dyed-in-the-wool Zionist, uh, not even a liberal Zionist from the accounts that I've heard. Uh, and the Schwartz Media, so that's um, a 7am podcast, Black Ink Books, uh, the monthly, quarterly, um, there's, there's more, but um, you can look it up. Uh, so Schwartz Media, for as long as anyone can remember, has a has had um, a staunchly anti-Palestinian stance and has um, suppressed Palestinian voices, refused Palestinian writers, never platformed Palestinians, um, and yeah, deliberately worked against um, Palestinian solidarity and and their voices. De deliberately worked to to suppress Palestinian voices, um, and so. The Sunday paper was sort of set up as um, as a, a ploy to raise awareness of that issue on the first part, but also as a platform to um, to allow a paid uh, a paid platform um, for artists that chose to boycott Schwartz Media. So yeah, it was essentially a, a boycott movement from the start. Um, but also just recognizing that you know artists, um, it's it's hard for us to turn down work. Um, and especially artists of colour or that are marginalised um, in some way, you know, like it's, we so rarely get the opportunity to, to be platformed um, and to have our voices heard, uh, you know, the, the power to narrate, um, as Edward Said would say, is, is so important for, um, for these struggles, uh, the power for um, the ability for the voice of of the people that are experiencing, you know, um, oppression or um, or whatever, to be the ones that are speaking their story, and yes, and so to choose to not take opportunity to be platformed, you know, is really difficult. And so, what the Sunday Paper is trying to do is is to provide an alternative platform, um, so those voices can be heard, those artists can be paid, 
and they don't have to choose to support apartheid by doing that. Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander and, and Palestinian writers so far as well, I should say. Um, and it's been amazing working with those writers and, um, and hearing their work and just like the power and the genuineness of, um, of that solidarity between um, our Indigenous people and, and Palestinians and yeah, just, just the power of, of writers using that platform to, to speak their minds and, you know, say whatever they want. Um, I know you can only speak to your experience working in the audio kind of um, division of um, the Sunday paper, but, you know, as you said at the core of it, it's an act of cross-cultural and geographical solidarity. Um, can you kind of speak to some of the processes that the Sunday paper went through to ensure that that solidarity was always strived for? Yeah, for sure. Um, so there's always a lot of consultation. Um, yeah, we we always try to... Uh, we start get, by getting people to acknowledge, and in the audio version that I do as well, we start by getting people to acknowledge um, the land that they're from and the land that they're speaking from and working from as well. Um, and yeah, we just try to include the writers in the editorial process. Um, that that process is is pretty hands off as well. Um, you know, we we want it to be. Uh, well edited and well presented. Um, we've we've employed a, a designer um, who's amazing. Dennis Grohl is a um, designer who worked for Black Ink Books actually, and very early on, when that stuff started coming out about about Palestine, um, quit his job there. Um, and you know he's he's got this amazing sort of thesis about the politics of font and everything about what he does is is very. Um, you know, decolonized and, and powerful and beautiful as well. Um, so yeah, being like very careful about design and and how that uh, represents our politics as well. Um, but then at the same time, being very careful to um, to replicate and really do justice to the voices that we're platforming. Um, and like again with the fonts, like even um, down to you know, Dennis designing fonts for the titles based on the handwriting of the writers. Um, so, you know, yeah, our, our writers are, are central to what we do. Absolutely. Yeah. Amal, you recently wrote a piece in um, Overland navigating your family's displacement from Palestine whilst unpacking what it is to be a settler on on stolen lands here. Uh, in the piece, you describe how a lot of, you know, colonial narratives are able to relocate attention away from the violence of the state and then blame oppressed communities for their own circumstances. What are those conversations like with your family? I think um, I think there's this difficulty and I think it's experienced among a lot of immigrant communities, especially our parents who, you know, um, who you know, packed their things in and they moved to this country. And when they came here, um, they experienced a lot of that racial violence from the get-go especially me personally coming from a Muslim and Arab background when my parents came here they were just experiencing you know anti-Palestinianism which is something that I prominently experienced in this day and age but for them they were experiencing the rampant um, Islamophobia that we were seeing um, in the early um, 90s and, and post-2001 so they were kind of at the at the front of that so for my parents who did not have an um, understanding, were not kind of educated in this country, just came, came in here. 
uh, a lot of the times they, they're unaware um, they're for, for a very long period of time or there was this lack of awareness of, of, of the fact that, that, that they settlers are on, on stolen land um, and that the racism that they're experiencing and that they see within the media and that they see within the police force and that they, they, they think they saw even you know, their careers and their jobs um, was hand in hand with the settler colonial violence um, that formed, that founded this country and the white supremacy and the racism that founded this country and seeps into the structures of this country. So for a really long time, I would say that there was this lack of awareness. And uh, for me personally, having the privilege of, you know, um, of, of, of having an education and, um, and also being able to, um, to uh, go through university studies and and being able to, you know, read the English language and be able to learn about the land that I'm on. I think I remember the first conversation I had with my with my dad, and I remember seeing um, the, the a protest in the city, and um, I, I believe there might there might have been a death in custody um, or something. And I, at the point, and regretfully, I was not aware, and it was quite a long time ago. And um, and I remember seeing that, and then it was. You know, and it was led by First Nations groups, and there was a Palestinian flag in the background. And I remember going home that day, um, and this is, you know, probably my first, you know, exposure to to Black Palestinian solidarity. And I was quite young at the young at the time. And I went home that day and I told my dad, I was like, "Oh, this is the first time I've seen a Palestinian flag waved, you know, in Australia by non-Palestinians." And because I had never really been exposed to a lot of a lot of um, those grassroots projects, I, I wasn't aware of it. And I remember him telling me and being like, well, it makes sense because their land was stolen like ours. And that was the first time I was able to have that conversation um, with my family. And uh, from then on, I, I've always been quite aware of it. And I've, I've really integrated it when I started um, focusing a lot on activism last year um, and, and on this, that's something that I ingrained into it. And it's been really easy having that, those conversations um, with my dad who, who really is starting to understand the Black Palestinian solidarity in this country and the nature of it, and the fact that you know um, our resistance are, are intertwined and and we are working to we are um, resisting the same the same um, projects and um, it took obviously my parents a very long time to recognise that because of the difficulties that they faced and lack of access they had to education and, and to use information but um, it was a very um, easy thing to understand once they became aware of. I similarly resonate with that in that, um, you know, my parents were um, immigrants from the Philippines and left around the 80s when the Marcos regime was um, in power. And there was a legacy of violence that my mother was leaving to come to Australia, um, essentially into an era of assimilation. So I feel like there was a lot of conversations she was stifling to um, guarantee her safety, her um, which was promised by this idea of assimilation. But yeah, similarly, like years ago, um, I was at um, probably an Invasion Day rally um, and I saw uh, a Filipino flag. Oh, actually, not the Filipino flag. I saw the word Anakbayan. And Anakbayan is a Filipino, um, like global kind of activist movement. And then realizing how simply and like um, powerfully connected those movements were. And it really like, like lit a light bulb in my head and it was like, oh, of course, like, of course it is. And then like translating that conversation to my parents and my parents kind of like slowly kind of catching up. And I just feel like, how, how do we, how do you kind of like explain to an older generation, like something that 
you know, seems so entrenched in their being, but like because of years of like assimilation, years of like coming into a system that promised to protect them at the cost of them rejecting their identity in history. Like, how do you kind of like bridge that gap for them? It's like, it's become our responsibility apparently. Yeah. And I think there's like this, this, this just added difficulty, um, I think, which is that when, 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 um, when they came to this country, they were so desperate uh, for safety and um, they felt or they were, they were manipulated and they were told by the state that, you know, in order to, to have this safety and, you know, this is in the aftermath of the Cronulla riots and in the aftermath of, of 2001, but they were told that in order to have this safety, you have to stop being like you and start being like us. So even when we were growing up, you know, and I'm, I'm only 21. So this is all like a lot of this is very fresh, like five, six years ago, is that I was constantly told, not just by my family, but by members of like of my communities or mentors that I need to, you know, tone it down a bit and and I need to, you know, um, and I, I I need to, you know, fit into this. And I was like, but why should I be fitting into the settler colonial project? Because A, the settler colonial project is propagating is propagating violence in this country and we need to we need to stand in solidarity with the First Nations people of this country because they they need liberation. Yeah, this leads to my kind of next question. And I know both of you have spoken about this idea of the model minority where, you know, people of color make achievements within the very structures set out to oppress or pit us against each other. We see it in how there's a belief that having more people of color politicians is seen as, you know, enough change. Um, I guess you just touched on this, but how do we compel people to set a benchmark that demands more than that? I think our the key in order to stop pushing this model minority trajectory is to stop calling for a seat at the table and just calling for destroying the table. And what's the point of going into any institution, whether it's parliament house, whether it's the media, whether it's just some random corporate job, right? Um, or any institution and, and saying, you know what, I want to seat at the table because we're talking about a table that's predominantly white. We're talking about a table that was created uh, for white for white people, predominantly white men, for being honest. And, you know, okay, I say I want to see that this table, I'm going to have to um, answer to white values and to colonial values and to continue working in this structure that has not created a culturally safe space. So just because now I'm, on, let's just say tomorrow I, I'm in Parliament House or, some, or something and giving an analogy with myself in it and I'm sitting at this table, my presence being there is not suddenly going to stop racism in the country. My Islamophobia in this country, my presence being there is not suddenly going to liberate Palestine. If I continue, um, if I continue subjecting myself to the standard of whiteness and to the values of, of Australia and white people and so on and so forth, we need to create a whole new standard where these values are anti-racist, anti um anti-capitalist and anti-patriarchy anti-colonial because if we're not setting ourselves for that standard then it does not matter what color skin the next person is if their values are still going to be propagating these same um, ideas and ideologies that continue to oppress people bar for radicalism is so low here you know um our idea of what is is radical is just you know but because of 
the media and what is considered left, you know, in Australian media as well. Um, and what is left among progressives, you know, it's just, it feels like we're so far from the mark sometimes. I think protest culture as well is really sick in Australia, you know, like it's, you know, um, there's there's such strong traditions of protest um, in other countries that are sort of used to social unrest and that sort of thing. And Australia, you know, is largely a very apathetic country. Um, and I think, you know, there are a lot of amazing young radicals like Amal that are um, doing amazing things and like there, there are amazing spaces for, for protest and true radicalism in Australia. But overall, you know, uh, sort of middle middle class Australia is just so apathetic, um, and it's so it's so hard to get movement happening in Australia on issues for that reason. We just, on the on the most part, feel very safe and very you know. There's this there's this idea that like oh well, but you know, life's so easy in Australia. Why would you complain? But it's not. It's not easy. For so, it could be worse. But it's also it's it's like. You think it's easy because it's easy for you. When we're talking about interracial solidarity or we're talking about doing work that, that platforms other people and being able to understand that um, from a perspective of, you know, um, of coming from another place, you know. Yeah. And I, I also I want to go back quickly just to um, Indigenous and Palestinian solidarity as well. And um, just because I was talking about the Sunday paper, I just want to acknowledge as well that... Um, that solidarity has like such a longer history than the Sunday paper. And the Sunday paper isn't actually even the first Aboriginal Palestinian publication in Australia. So there was one like in the seventies, I think, um, the activist uh, Gary Foley and um, Ali Kazak was a Palestinian activist in the seventies and they sort of got together and um, yeah. And so th there's a long, there's a long history of that solidarity. And even in, the boycott movements like the Cindy Festival, you know, the first artists to boycott were um, uh, Barker, Carla Dickens, Amy Maguire, you know, that that um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people are always the first to be like, yep, we get this, you know, <laughs> and that's why that that solidarity is so important. Actually, I was um, I was going to read a bit of a little excerpt from Amy Maguire's piece in the first Sunday paper, if I could, like just on that point, because I think it's really powerful. She says, these original invasions into Durrambul homelands and into the homelands of Aboriginal nations all across the country was our own Nakba. We have been denied the right to live and care for our country and our lands. Um, so, you know, like no, nothing really compares, like, and I, like, you know, to, that experience. Of I, I have one more away. question to ask both of you. And I guess it, it's, a, it's a question that we ask all the guests that come through on the show. And I'm asking you to, I guess, in the framework of the conversation that we just had around interracial solidarity in finding intergenerational connection. But when did you realize there was power in your race? I grew up here in, in so-called Australia and I, I grew up um, during the war on terror. So for me, it's a really interesting dynamic because um, I didn't have a direct exposure to what anti-Palestinian racism looked like because I was too busy dealing with the vampirism homophobia in this country. So it's not like the busyness, it was just that I was very over um, growing up. And um, I think there was, there was um, you know, there was, there was 
this constant um, fear, but there was this constant, I think, like, especially I remember like when I was in high school, so 2014, 2015, 2014, 2015, there was also this constant, like, need to have, you know, to, to, to have a world understand, you know, who you are and where you're from and that, you know, we're okay people when, you know, you open up the news and people are debating whether or not you should um, be expelled from this country. So, you know, there was constant um, desire to be accepted. And then, you know, I've seen this growing up in a predominantly um, Muslim and Arab, especially in Arab communities where I kind of grew up in. So I, I, I felt like there was this desire growing up and of wanting to be accepted by by the Australian community and I think that was you know when when you're growing up and, and you're exposed to all of this and you know then you have you know progressive being like you know they belong here you think you, you think that's what you need and within my first week at university I had not just experienced Islamophobia which is like something I expect now I was going to experience I, I experienced uh, a lot of anti-Palestinian um, of racism, you know, people would ask you where you're from, you tell them, and, and the comments, you know, they, they would begin. Um, and I guess for me in that first year is that I, I just felt like I just wanted to, you know, just get through it and I wanted to survive. And during that same time, that's when kind of Christchurch um, happened as well. And, and, and for me, I guess it was, it was kind of laying low for a period of time and I felt very vulnerable and, and, and very quiet. Um, and then, um, it was during COVID and I had encountered, um, I had encountered, um, they, um, they were um, Zionist and get basically not, not, not revealed that when they initiated a conversation with me purely for being Palestinian. And I kind of said, you know, they want to know more about the Palestinian perspective. And, you know, me being naive and, and thinking everyone's a great human being, I went into that conversation and I was exposed to every single racist thing in the book and I think in that moment it was I realized you know um why are people so outward um in their views and in their racism and in their perspective about my people but why do I have to feel vulnerable in this space and I guess from then on I became more outspoken and I, I felt I started trying to make myself more comfortable and I guess then when the uprisings were happening last year um, it was just this, this, this kind of this, this moment where I was like this is my experience um, this is my experience this is my family's experience um, and I think our voices and our stories um, and who we are as people it's a power and it's a tool um, and, and it's a form of resistance and we don't have to be vulnerable. We don't have to cower anymore. We don't have to try to fit in to this society that does not want us anyway. Um, and I think that was more important for me in realizing that, that um, truth telling and being honest and being truthful, that was the biggest, um, our biggest power and our biggest tool. Yeah, um, I guess, yeah, like I'll start by saying, you know, I think, because I could be considered white passing. There's a lot of crap that I haven't had to deal with um, <laughs> for that reason. Uh, but yeah, my, my great-grandfather immigrated from China, um, escaped from China actually during the Boxer Rebellion and, um, you know, sort of rejected uh, China for that reason, was, was very um, against 
the Chinese government at the time, um, but at the same time was never accepted into Australia. Uh, my grandfather was a, a preacher and wasn't allowed to preach in a white church because he was Chinese. And so he sort of just traveled around the countryside doing like roadside sermons to um, farmers and stuff like that. Um, he was, uh, he refused to fight in the war as well and, and went to jail um, for, for refusing conscription. Um, and, you know, I think my, my mom sort of, and my brother as well have sort of like inherited some of that, um, that rebellion. And even though, you know, like a lot of my, the Chinese side of my family are very, uh, they have fallen into that, uh, that trap, right, of, of wanting legitimacy that um, the Ma was talking about before and sort of like wanting to, to pass as Australian um, so that they can feel safe and they feel like they're, they're, their children will have a chance. You know, there's like this sort of rift in my family where like half of them changed their name to Leslie. And the argument was, you know, I don't want my children to be discriminated against. And then my grandfather was like, not like we're keeping this name, you know, we are who we are sort of thing. Um, and, you know, so there is that, there's that rebel element um, where we never really felt like we belonged and we like sort of anti-authoritarianism and that sort of thing. But then at the same time, I think, you know, I grew up never feeling like Australia was my own or this culture was my own you know like I this suspicion that this wasn't my country um and that this wasn't like something that I wanted to be incorporated into this sort of you know insidious um like larrikinism kind of narrative and the Anzacs and and all of that stuff that is just like this you know pathetic excuse for a culture just never never spoke to me um, and I think it probably took me a while to realize that that was because of my migrant background or at least like partly because of it um, that I never wanted to be incorporated into that and that it was it was never going to be as easy for me as like you know a white middle class family that never saw a problem with that I suppose so yeah I guess that's like that's the power of it for me because I'm I'm grateful for that like I'm really grateful that I that I never bought into Australian culture because it's really awful. That is all for Race Matters this week. I'm Sharika Hellaludin. Thank you so much to our guests, Amal Nasser and Mel Chun, for speaking so potently and honestly about their experiences and piecing together a really complex web of ideas. You can listen back to episodes of Race Matters at fbiradio.com slash race matters. We've also linked some 101 info on Palestine if you're wanting to know more, as well as links to the Sunday paper where you can read and listen to a host of Palestinian and First Nations voices. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters.